So greetings for any of you just joining us. I'm Joel. We're walking through Luke's gospel. We've been doing this for about two years now. And today Jesus is going to confront us with our attitudes about wealth with a very sobering story, one that defies any illustration that I could come up with. So I'm going to quote a modern poem that has brought me to tears almost every time I've heard it for the last 30 years. Maybe you know the words. starts off, bum, 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 bum. She calls out to the man on the streets, Sir, can you help me? It's cold, I've got nowhere to sleep. There's somewhere you can tell me. He walks on, doesn't look back. He pretends he can't see her. Starts to whistle as he crosses the street. Seems embarrassed to be there. Oh, think twice. Just another day for you and me in paradise. Oh, think twice. Just another day for you and me, you and me in paradise. You probably heard that. Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins. Yes, your pastor quotes unchristian rock and roll songs. Oh, and the Apostle Paul did the same thing back in his day. But why does your pastor quote unchristian rock and roll songs? Actually, the real reason is I think Phil Collins has done a better job of resonating with the reality of our broken world and the poverty and the hardness of so many hearts than any Christian popular song that I've heard in the last 30 years. And if I'm wrong, please correct me afterwards. I'd love to be corrected. That song gets me because I've seen the faces. I've seen them this week. And I've done the whistle and I've done the walk. It gets me because I've tried to recreate Eden here on earth. And why do I do that? If I am a Christian... I profess that I do not believe paradise can be found here on this earth. There is a paradise that makes the best life on earth look like making mud pies in the slum. And there's also a hell that makes the worst life on earth look like a Sunday afternoon picnic. And both last forever. And friends, it is the two-minute warning Will Jesus get our attention today? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. You can find it also in your bulletin. You'll find it printed on page 5. We're going to be reading verses 14 to 31. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 16. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that's Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. 
there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please join me in prayer. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the immediate aid we find in these ancient words. Grant your spirit that we might receive them in faith. We ask, we plead with you that you will not allow the one speaking to detract or distract from the one you who first spoke these words 2,000 years ago. And please, Father, cause what is heard to be of such help that we may be praising you, every one of us, 10 billion years from now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sobering. Jesus gives us quite the sobering story about where love of money leads you. He wants us to think very carefully about our possessions and how we use them. This chapter actually began with a manager who wasted his master's property, but later proved very shrewd in using his unrighteous wealth to make friends. And Jesus commended him for this. The point that Jesus is making is not that money is evil. Wealth is not evil. It is unrighteous because it is part of a dying world. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. Ever been to a funeral of a rich person? There's somebody in the back, you know, and they're like, how much did they leave behind? Do you know the correct answer? Everything. They left it all. Which is why we should be investing not just our treasure, but our time and our talents for people, in people. We should use our unrighteous wealth to make friends, to help folks who have eternal souls. Which is why Jesus is really giving us a sobering story. You see, whatever you've been given, whether a lot or very little, it's kind of like Monopoly with the money, the paper money, and all the plastic pieces. You know the game, right? It's a helpful game. It actually reveals our hearts. Plus, it's rigged against some. What do you mean, Joel? Well, I found this out when our last foster daughter 
brought out to the kitchen table a version called Miss Monopoly. Have you heard that game? It disadvantages the male species. It was horrible. <laughs> I got less money. Every time a card came up, I got a worse penalty. It was traumatic, but I digress. <laughs> but doesn't that game just transform some of us into Daddy Warbucks? All right. Someone lands on your property, you start to do a little dance, and you hand out, put out your hand, fork the money over, come on. The one with the most wealth wins at the end. But then it's game over. We put the money, the board, the pieces back in the box, and we go back to reality. Monopoly is like this age. Monopoly is like this age. And after comes the true and lasting reality. One day God is going to box up this whole reality that we're in now and bring us into something more. And the question Jesus left us with last week, when your game is over, will it be said that you are a good player with your unrighteous wealth? Not did you have the biggest pile at the end of the game, but were you godly? Making friends, and especially with those who are playing a rigged game. And Jesus concluded by saying, you cannot serve God and money. And something really remarkable happens with the very next verse. We just read it. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Can you imagine a bunch of people mocking the preacher? Actually, someone laughed there. <laughs> um, it's not surprising, actually, if you know the Pharisees' mindset, why they were lovers of money. They believed that your wealth was God's stamp of approval on your life. You were righteous. And here is this poor rabbi chiding people about riches. Remember, Jesus is homeless. Jesus, read Luke 9.51, has nowhere to lay his head. And the Pharisees are thinking, ah, that's really rich, poor man, chiding people who are rich. Actually, many today would also laugh at Jesus, and they are. We've been watching American Gospel on Thursday nights. It's a documentary about how the American dream has entered American pulpits. Preachers today, like Pharisees then, they'll quote you all kinds of Bible verses of God's promises of blessings. The money changers are present in temples everywhere. But let me not waste our time scolding others, because we got our own issues, don't we? Let me press on, on us Americans who are living the dream. Oh, and any Canadians as well. <laughs> Ever walked by the beggar? The tin can out in front of them, they smell, they're in rags, wearing shabby clothes, covered with sores. Is your first thought ever this? What bad choices did she make? What did they do to deserve this? That thought ever come to your mind? Do we ever think of money as a reward for upright living and not a resource for outright loving? God has given us all that we have, and we're to use it to love others. Jesus actually says this reward mindset is a wrong one. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. <clears throat> That's actually interesting. How is it that we think having money and possessions justifies us before others? Few people I know will come out and say, well, I'm better than you, Joel, because look at all my stuff. 
But think about what happens when you get a really nice pair of shoes, uh, a raise, a new phone. We start to feel a little shiny and special, especially as you look around at what other people have. I remember once getting a free upgrade on a rental car. And this is a really nice car with like serious power. It was smooth. And suddenly I couldn't help but notice as I'm driving around how pitiful all the other cars were around me. I would come up to the stoplight and someone would pull up next to me and I was thinking, I could own you with what I have under the hood. I could suck you right up my tailpipe. Why was it that I suddenly felt superior to all these other people? Because we begin to identify with our possessions, our wealth, as we look down on others who have less. We begin to justify ourselves in the eyes of men. We begin to feel we're worthy. And Jesus says, God knows exactly what's happening in your heart at that time, and he doesn't like it. What we exalt before men is an abomination. That's a strong word in God's sight. Not that there's anything inherently evil about the car, the phone, the rays. It's just stuff. But our hearts believing that they make us superior to others is an abomination. Repugnant in God's sight. Repugnant, detestable. Because you know what you've just done? You've just made your possessions an idol that you're worshiping. God made your heart for himself. You cannot serve God in money. Sets the plate then in verse 16. Jesus says, And the law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband also commits adultery. Jesus is actually reminding these Pharisees what he said back in chapter 7 to them. John the Baptist, we have to see him as the bridge between two eras. He's the dividing line. A new era in salvation history has come. When John came on the scene declaring the kingdom of God, a new reality had arrived because Jesus was now here. Jesus was the one that the law and the prophets was pointing them to. The whole Old Testament anticipates Jesus coming. You won't understand your Old Testament if you're not looking for how this points to Christ. Basically, Jesus is saying, you guys are reading your Bibles all wrong. The law and the Ten Commandments were not given so that you could be saved by keeping it. The law and the Ten Commandments were to get you saved in Christ because you couldn't. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you're reading your Bibles in such a way so that you can justify yourselves. We can do that, you know. You can read your Bible and pick out, you know, the verses that justify the way we live. Right? It's like Paul Simon said, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. (laughs) They did that so that they could live greedy lives and look down on others who had less than them. Even as the God that they served looked down from heaven, far down from heaven, and raises the poor up from the ash heap, like Rex just read earlier. The same God they're serving, they're not looking anything like. So how does God raise up the needy, Joel? Well, he sent his son Jesus to save them. That's why Jesus is saying right here, you have to understand, he's saying, do you want to reject me and my words? Go ahead. Then you're on your own. Then you're choosing to be accountable to all of the law, not just the best parts. In fact, you have to obey the Bible down to the very dots on the I's, the vowels. 
You have to obey every bit of it. Now, Jesus may have just exploded your world. I say that because we're in the midst of a tremendous shift, culturally speaking. Barna reports that 52%, 52% of professing Christians today believe they can attain eternal life by being or doing good. The scales have tipped. Most Christians now, professing Christians, believe they can justify themselves by doing and being good. Do you think you can justify yourself? Pastor Joel, I'm not perfect, but I do some good things. Jesus says if you think that you are trying to force your way into heaven and it won't work. Since chapter 9, Luke keeps reminding us that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He keeps telling us over and over, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Christ and his cross are the good news that John and faithful preachers preach today. That's the good news. Maybe you're visiting and you're a not yet disciple of Jesus. Maybe you're hearing from pulpits like this one, how Jesus' death on the cross is the great proof of God's love. And you say, Joel, that just doesn't float my boat. I agree, that doesn't float my boat either. I appreciate that. If I went up to Jamie and professed my undying love for her, and, that, and by the way, that's my wife. If I went up to Jamie and I professed my undying love for her, I said, Jamie, I love you. In order to prove it, I'm going to throw myself out in front of a freight train. That wouldn't make any sense to us, would it? But if Jamie knew that I was giving up my life, throwing myself in front of a freight train in order to save her life, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because that proves I love her. My friend... We all have a major freight train heading our way. All mankind since the fall lost communion with God or under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and to the pains of hell forever. To quote our catechism, which is taking up what scripture says. It's possible you may never have heard that there's a freight train coming your way from a pulpit. It's appointed for all men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus says, not one dot of God's law will, and you will be judged for whether you kept it perfectly. Never tell a lie. Never steal. Lust. Ignore that needy neighbor. Did any of us here love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What are you going to say on that day when you stand before God Almighty's throne and eternity is at stake? Are you going to pull out a handful of good works and boast in these? How do you think that's going to go? Wouldn't it be better to say, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. I only stand before you, Heavenly Father. Because you sent your son, and I put my hope and trust in his perfect obedience. And because he threw his life in front of that freight train coming my way when he extended his arms in love on the hardwood of the cross. Do you know that when you say that, God is going to smile? Because his own son, who he sent, gets the glory for your salvation. And Jesus wants to save you today. He is wooing you.
Won't you come? Won't you come? Because nobody has ever loved you more or better than Jesus Christ. Love so amazing, so divine, demands your soul, your life, your all. Think that commitment there that Jesus is prompting us explains Jesus' one-verse commentary on divorce and adultery. It may be that Jesus is just giving a little law example. The Pharisees added extra rules so that they could divorce their wives for doing, doing things like burning dinner. And Jesus is showing, huh? But I think Jesus' main point here is that they are adulterers for rejecting him. You see, God designed marriages to be reflections of God's relationship with his people. My marriage to Jamie is supposed to be a snapshot of the future reality, a glimpse of Christ and his bride. Read Ephesians 5. Jesus, the bridegroom, he has come, he has arrived so that his people can be with him. And he finds these religious people who want to justify themselves so they can be with money. But you cannot have two masters. And there are consequences to adultery. Which is why Jesus now tells a story about a man these Pharisees can relate to. He loves money. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We're introduced to two men, and what a contrast. Jesus describes a rich man with incredible wealth. He wore purple. Purple dye is super expensive in this day. You only wear purple if you have serious bank. Is that purple? I think we have a different opinion of Dave now. I appreciate you a little more than us. Jesus is saying, will you get a load of this guy's incredible wealth? In fact, the Greek here for linen is actually refers to his undergarments. Jesus is saying, I see London, I see France. This rich guy even has the finest of underpants. <laughs> and he loves extravagant feasts. It's the same language for when they killed the fatted calf, that great feast given for the prodigal. Feasts like that all the time. He's going overboard on everything that is exalted by men. And Robin Leach, remember Lifestyles Rich, he would have us drooling over his house. His house isn't mentioned here, but actually the word for gate here, it's not like the white picket number I have at my house. The gate here is, think of a palace entryway. That's the kind of gate that this man has. Can you imagine his house? What's at his gate? Lazarus. This poor beggar wearing rags. Every day he gets laid at this rich man's gate, and this was custom in this society. There's no welfare system. There's no disability. He must be disabled because people are taking and laying him here. It's customary that the wealthy would care for those who are poorest in society. But Jesus says that's not happening. Lazarus doesn't even get the table scraps. He longed to be fed with what fell from the rich man table, but he's getting nothing. Day after day, do you see him? Belly growling, calling out every time the rich man passes by whistling. The only attention Lazarus gets is from the dogs. 
I'll confess, I want to see these dogs in a good light. I come at Scripture with a certain set of lenses. I love dogs. Man's best friend sees poor Lazarus as his sores, you know, and they're going up and they're licking boo-boos, you know, what a wonderful dog. No, that's not... As much as I pick on cats, I know, Victor, I have to be an equal opportunity today. Dogs were not pets in this day. Dogs were scavengers. Like what I saw on a nature show the other day, wild babies. There's this cute little baby seal watching Tabo. <laughs> got separated from its mom. It's making these sad little seal noises. And on the scene comes this ugly-looking hyena who notices poor little Tabo. And, of course, the ominous music is playing in the background. My wife and niece are almost in tears for poor Tabo. And I kept reassuring Tabo is going to be fine. Between you and me, I was freaking out, too. Like, oh, no. Well, friends, the dogs licking Lazarus, they're doing it like he's a baby seal. Hold up, I think somebody here is worried about poor Tabo. Don't worry, Mama Seal will show up just in time (laughs) to chase the scavenger away. Not poor Lazarus, he has no one to chase these dogs away. What a contrast. The rich man has everything. This poor man has only one thing. Didn't he catch it? What does he have that the rich man doesn't have? A name. The rich man is nameless, while the poor man, he's named Lazarus. In this culture, that actually means Lazarus is the important character in this story. And his name means God helps. Even though nobody in this society today would have thought that as they saw Lazarus. Each and every day, they looked at this guy who was in a game that was rigged for him to lose. But then comes the great reversal when death comes. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So let me ask you now, who would you prefer to be? Poor Lazarus or the rich man? If we're honest, we'd like to be Mr. Moneybags for the first 80 years and then Lazarus for the 50 trillion years to come, right? What is this rags to riches, riches to rags reversal about? Why does the rich man go to eternal torment? Why does Lazarus get to go to heaven to be at Abraham's side? Is Jesus' point, live well, go to hell, suffer pain, eternal gain? No, that cannot be. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And in Luke's gospel, by the way, there's a lot of wealthy people who Jesus saves. In fact, it's clear in this text, Abraham, very wealthy man up in heaven no Lazarus has a name because he's a believer and he's trusting in God for paradise not this reality he was rich with God that's why he finds him literally it's in Abraham's bosom that would mean he's at Abraham's table feast you know how they reclined at table this means he's got the catbird spot he's the one who would lean back his head just like John did with Jesus, and be there in Abraham's bosom. Talk about a total reversal of fortunes. Where's the rich man? How's he faring? He's in torment. In Hades, in hell. Yeah. Everyone on earth thought he was a blessed one. Even at his funeral. He actually got a funeral. I wonder what they're saying at his funeral. I suspect it was something like this. I always hear folks say, 
oh, so-and-so is in a better place. No matter what their life was like. I always hear that. Every funeral I've ever been to. Did you hear that? Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, so-and-so is in a worse place now? Jesus would disagree. Because Jesus preached a lot about hell, more than anybody else. And he came because he didn't want people to go there. That's what I hope you're hearing. Forever is a serious matter. Jesus sent Pastor Joel and brought you here today so that you would hear him say forever is a serious matter. J.C. Ryle writes, forever is the most solemn word in the English language. Any pulpit that only deals with the here and now is a shallow pulpit. I wouldn't be loving you if I made this a shallow pulpit, focusing on the now and the blessings today and ignoring the foreverness to come. We hear three requests from this man now facing foreverness in torment. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. This is remarkable for like multiple reasons. I'll mention a few. First, he knows Lazarus' name. Even as he ignored him day after day. And second, his heart has not changed. He still thinks Lazarus is second class, even as he's now there in Abraham's bosom. Even as the roles are reversed, he says, Father Abraham, playing his race card here, right? He says, have Lazarus come be my water boy. He's a conceited jerk. even in hell. I saw a post this week on social media pleading with folks, you would repent if you knew how bad hell was. Mm -mm. There's no repentance at all in this rich man. He hasn't changed a bit. Do you realize that repentance is all of God's grace? I think that may be the scariest thing we need to think about when we think about hell. That's the end of God's grace. That's the one place God's grace doesn't go. Victor was talking about this earlier. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Abraham says, You got what you wanted riches, respect. You got your paradise. And Lazarus got what he wanted. Help from God. Grace to be forgiven his sins. True and lasting paradise. And Abraham says, now the game's over. And the rules of ultimate reality, the real reality, is you are where you are. You stay where you are. There's no crossing over. There's no second chances, despite what any Christian books out there tell you. Now he has a second request. He said, Father, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I tried to imagine this moment in Jesus' story where Jesus' eyes filled with tears as he looked at these Pharisees ensnared by money. I wondered if there were five of them. Consider the kind eyes of Jesus on his way to the cross. 
looking at you as he describes a man like you in torment who's begging that a person like you will not end up like him. But no warning will be given. Why not? They have their Bibles. And Jesus is saying the Bible is sufficient to save. They have Moses and the prophets. The confidence of heaven is in the Bible. That's why Jesus was trying to convince them to take it seriously. It revealed their sin and their Savior. But the arrogant rich man, boy, he's arrogant. He disagrees. He begs to differ with Abraham. No, no, you got it wrong. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man says, the Bible's not enough. But a resurrection, that will lead them to repentance. And the story ends with Jesus saying, no, not even if they saw Lazarus rise from the dead, will they believe. Jesus is right. I preached John 11 at a funeral just over a week ago where Jesus raises a man from the dead. Anybody remember his name? The chapter ends after they watch Lazarus rise from the dead with the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. And eventually they do. It's not an information problem. It's not a lack of signs. It's a heart problem. I know I need to land the plane, but a few points of application for us. This week, let us be examining our hearts and repenting of all the ways we're trying to create paradise here on earth. You may say, Joel, I'm not rich. Yeah, well, what skills, what talents, what resources do you have? What makes you glow? What do you exalt in? If we're exalting it before men, that is a detestable thing in God's sight. And we need to take that serious. God wants your heart. That's what he's saying. He loves you so much, he sent the greatest gift he could have ever done to take the wrath we deserve. Why wouldn't you want to give him your heart? So start cultivating your hearts for that. And also for that day, that cultivate desire. That's why we have the table every week. That we will be feasting with God. Think of how wonderful that will be. Take in the verses, what eyes have not seen, what ears have not heard, what minds haven't conceived, the things God has in store for those who love him. What do you think heaven will be like? Is it informed by the Bible? Actually, Victor, in their Sunday school, he mentioned playing harps and clouds. I hope that's not what we think of heaven. I'll be honest. Strumming a heart for a billion years does not excite me in the least. <laughs> Heaven's going to be nothing like that. Olivia's right. It's going to be absolute pure blessed joy. And you're going to be sinless. It's going to be wonderful. So read and meditate on scripture about your amazing God and pray for spiritual eyes so that you can see and consider the glory of being at his side. And knowing that Jesus has one paradise, let's start living like we believe that. Think of it this way. It's the last days. And God has put you into the game with two minutes to go, and you can't lose. You can't lose. 
So let's play hard. And I'm encouraged by what I see in you guys. I hear new things every week you guys are doing. So I just encourage you to continue on in doing that. Let's play hard. Let's not get distracted and start treating this world like it's the real deal. Instead, let's think twice. Think twice about those around us who are losing. And rich people too. That includes rich people too. As Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord... Let us seek to persuade men. Let's give them glimpses of paradise. That's my last thought. By the things that God has given us, let's give them glimpses of paradise. Maybe it is a homeless person. Buy them a meal. Maybe someone needs justice in your neighborhood. Advocate for them. And then when they ask you why, tell them, well, I know that in heaven there's going to be no hungry people. And in heaven there's going to be no injustice. In fact, Heaven is going to be so far beyond this. The best thing you eat in this life is nothing compared to what you're going to taste in the kingdom to come. In fact, every bite will only get better. Friends, since we have been so loved, let's love others. I'm going to close with a quote from Spurgeon. Love your fellow men and cry about them if you cannot bring them to Christ. If you cannot save them, you can weep over them. If you cannot give them a drop of cold water in hell, you can give them your heart's tears while they're still in this body. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to die for our sins, to take the wrath and curse that each and every one of us here deserves, and for raising Jesus from the dead as the start of a new creation. We pray that we will look to him alone for our salvation and show others this by our words and deeds that he did not come to improve the approvable or reward the rewardable, but to become the way, the truth, and the life for all who believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.